TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Hello, I'm Chris Anderson, and welcome to the TED interview, the final episode of this season. So I think we all could use a dose of courage these days. And today's guest has it in spades. In 2012, Malala Yousafzai was thrust into the global spotlight at age 15 when the Taliban attacked and nearly killed her because she'd criticized the group and their opposition to girls' education. In the years since, Malala has founded the Malala Fund and traveled the world to advocate for girls' rights to education. In 2014, she became the youngest recipient ever of the Nobel Peace Prize, and in 2017, the youngest ever UN Messenger of Peace. As of this summer, she's also a graduate of Oxford University. Listening to Malala, I just, I found her so inspiring, so moving. Uh, This is actually the first public interview she's given in many months. She explains what the pandemic might mean for girls' education, safety, and health around the world. She underscores the power of working for change at the local, not only the national level. And she also reveals a bit of her regular self, the young woman who felt the pressure of becoming a global icon at age 15, but who can't wait to relax with Netflix. The activist whose role models include the very girls she speaks for. My colleague, Whitney Pennington-Rogers, current affairs curator at TED, interviewed Malala before a live virtual audience at TED 2020. Here is Whitney. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Malala Yousafzai. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you so much. And, you know, first and foremost, congratulations on, on your graduation. That is amazing. You recently tweeted that there will be lots of sleeping reading and Netflix in your future. And so, you know, how does it feel to be finished with college and and what have you uh, been up to these past couple of weeks? So to be honest, my exams were really long. They were a month long exams and uh, I was just exhausted. I needed a long, long break. Uh, Right now I am allowing myself. I'm just saying that, okay, you are allowed to do this for a bit because you need a bit of rest and a bit of break. So, so far it's spending time with family resetting my room because it still looked like a high school girl's room. And I was like, I'm a graduate now. I need to change my room setting just to feel a bit older, you know, uh, to see that transformation around me as well, as much as I see it within me. And now I am unemployed, looking for jobs at home, but I'm really happy. I'm really, you know, just so excited and overwhelmed 
that I have graduated from Oxford. I finished my undergraduate in philosophy, politics and economics and the past three years have been incredible. I have grown so much. I have learned so much from my friends, tutors and professors and, and everything uh, that, I, that I saw there. That's great. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're actually making good on that tweet to, to take some time to rest. So, of course, as one of the world's most famous advocates for girls' education, um, this is obviously a really huge accomplishment, you know, to finish college. And I'm curious as how this has influenced you as an activist, especially thinking about the fact that you had to head to the West and leave Pakistan um, to acquire your education. You know, what? how has this influenced your work? It was always my dream to go and study in Oxford. And I am just really honored that I got the opportunity to study in the UK and then apply to the university that I always aspire to be in. I think this is quite overwhelming because a life uh, that I had expected was that I would continue my uh, secondary schooling in Pakistan, that I'll apply from there. And just as any other student in Pakistan will do, uh, but you know, things all everything changed in 2012 when I was attacked and uh, I had to move to the UK for uh, my treatment, for my surgeries. And since then, I have been getting my education in the UK. I've been campaigning for other girls' education as well, because I realized that education is empowering and there are 130 million girls who do not have access to it. And those are girls like me. Once I was in their place and I did not have access to school and I wanted somebody to speak out for me. And today those girls need voices. Uh, so I am out there speaking for them and also hoping that these girls have a platform where they can raise their own voices. As you were juggling your studies with your work, how has your work with the Malala Fund and, and all of your activism um, evolved in the time since you've been at university? To be honest, I I had so much energy when I was like 15, 16. I was just traveling all around the world. I was in refugee camps. I was uh, in Nigeria. I was speaking out for the girls who were abducted by Boko Haram. I went to Iraq as well, and uh, I have been to Brazil as well. So I've been sort of traveling around the world because I want to meet the girls and allow them to raise their voices, provide them a platform where they can speak out. So uh, in terms of that, it was quite a lot for me because I was still a school student and I would travel and give a speech somewhere. And then the next day I would have a class and I would have homework to finish. I would stay up all night to like finish my work. In university, if I'm honest, I did not put too much academic pressure on myself. I allowed myself to have fun as well, which I'm glad I did. I think I needed that to just spend more time with friends and just sort of be, you know, like other students. But at the same time, I gave my vacation time and uh, my Easter holiday, my uh, Christmas holiday to the activism that I do. I definitely um, can imagine that it must be hard to live the life of a normal college student um, as someone who is as famous and renowned as you are. And so uh, that's incredible to hear that you were able to sort of find that balance and experience college in the way that the average person does. Actually, like sort of found that younger side of myself. I was always surrounded by much older people and there was a lot to learn from that. But it was, this was the first time that I was engaging with people of my age. Well, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about your work and how it's connected to this moment and thinking about um, education for girls. You know, communities around the world have been devastated by the coronavirus pandemic um, in so many different ways. And could you talk a little bit to how this global health crisis has impacted girls' access to education specifically? 100% like COVID-19 is affecting people globally, and that include young girls as well. And uh, Malala Fund, we did a research 
and looking into previous cases like Ebola. And uh, the research shows that there are more than 10 million girls who are at risk of losing their education. Uh, these are girls who currently uh, would drop out of their schools and may never be able to return to their schools, either because of early marriages, because of those cultural barriers that they face. Parents are more likely to prefer early marriage for them than their education. But also a lot of them would be needed into workforce because they will be a financial option for, for the family. And these are the girls who are really vulnerable to being trapped in that and they may never be able to return to school. Uh, and this is what happened in the case of Ebola as well. There were many girls who did not uh, return to their schools. And there is a risk that the same might happen to girls in this crisis as well. And, you know, I think that some people might make the argument when you're thinking about what's happening with the pandemic, that we should really be focusing our energy on building back the economy and our public health systems and thinking about how to find a vaccine. Um, and that in this moment, it could be really easy for the issues for which you advocate to get pushed to the side. Um, so, you know, could you talk a little bit about why you think it's so important in this moment that we keep uh, the focus on girls' education, we keep it central to these conversations? I think uh, we should not forget about investing in girls, investing in women and their empowerment. They are sort of the key players in running countries and running our economies. And uh, it's, it's quite easy to forget about that and to ignore it. But I think it's time that we push governments uh, and all the responsible authorities to not forget girls when they make policies, when they make decisions about future. Uh, I think one thing that is really at risk is financing for education. Uh, that has been stagnated for the past years. And there's a risk that that could go down further, that could go into negative. So we don't want that. I really hope that governments uh, stay committed to financing girls' education and that they remain gender sensitive in that and ensure that there's uh, equal investment in girls' education and especially their secondary education. I think the second thing would be safety and health. A lot of parents might be concerned about uh, their children's health, especially young girls' health, when they send their daughters to school. And I think that's something that the policymakers need to look into that. One uh, other issue that is teen pregnancies. In such situations, uh, such as the current pandemic, uh, the number of teenage pregnancies will increase. And then the risk is that when these girls return to school in many countries and, and many local schools may not allow them to return to schools. So it's important that those norms are challenged. And uh, even if girls face teenage pregnancies, or have become mothers at teenage, that they are allowed to get back into their education. Uh, and I think finally, we, we need data. We need to go and research and also ensure that this is gender desegregated. And uh, it's important that governments take responsibility for that. And I see the risk of it being getting ignored. So it's time that all the champions, all the campaigners of girls' education, of education in general, of women's rights, that they come together and bring our voices together so they sort of grow louder and when governments make policies that uh, our voices and our concerns are heard. You know, and, and as you were talking through this, it really strikes me that in this moment, you know, a lot of the work that you're doing, you often think about girls in developing countries and how access to education is limited in some spaces in the world. And, and I think even right now in wealthier nations, you're seeing too that there are lots of girls who are also not having the same access to school that they might have before the pandemic started. So I, I think it's really interesting to think about how all the things you've just mentioned apply to every corner of the world right now. And, you know, I know our community's watching and they have lots of questions. So why don't we take a couple of those right now? You mentioned that you're now seeking employment. What is your dream job? Uh, to be honest, uh, there are many. When I was 
probably seven or eight, I wanted to be a car mechanic because I just thought it looks really cool. Uh, but right now, I think I am up for anything from working at a farm consultancy, uh, working with young people, especially. I really like to see the companies that young generation are building that are about a sustainable future. So uh, would love that. And uh, I would also very much like to take a break as well <laughs> and travel. But unfortunately, <laughs> because of the pandemic, uh, that option is, is not as I expected it to be. Let's see what other questions we have. Do you feel pressure as an activist and how do you balance that with pursuing other passions you have? I think there is pressure as an activist, but it is more so from me. When I started receiving support globally and I was receiving letters and cards and uh, from all across the world. And even now, like people are sending me beautiful notes and it's in thousands that I would not, never be able to respond to all of them. So when you see that global support, when you are at your most difficult time, you have that responsibility to sort of return or pay back. And for me, paying back is to continue working for uh, education. And I have remained committed to that. And as I mentioned earlier, when I was out of school, I wanted somebody to speak out for me. So I keep on thinking about that moment. That there are many girls right now who are asking the same question. They're asking all of us, what are we doing? If we were in their place, what would we have done? So that's why I think about that 11-year-old Malala and I keep on fighting. Let's take one more question right now. As so many young girls are forced into caretaker roles due to this pandemic with parents forced to work or have COVID-19, what's the path forward to help close the gap this generation is having in their education? I think one way in which we can challenge gender-based norms is by showing role models and examples to people. I think that has a huge, huge impact when we are growing up, when we are, uh, you know, looking at textbook, when we are looking at television, what we are hearing from our parents, for that young child, for that young girl, all of those things are impacting her. So it's important that we look at our curriculum, that we look at what we are showing on televisions and uh, in other, you know, now we have internet in those shows to our, to our children. And what are we setting as sort of the limit for girls? If girls are told to be limited to you know, playing with Barbie dolls, then that's what they might have in their mind. So it's important that we show them that they can be scientists, teachers, politicians, prime ministers, presidents, they can do anything. And it's important that we show them their role models. And the women leaders that I know of, they have truly inspired me to believe that, yes, women can have their voice on global platforms. They can be in those uh, positions of policy making, of change making. They can be presidents, prime ministers, and they can run the world and they can run countries. So I think when you see role models, that really has a huge, huge impact on you. And I, I'm sure for many people, you are also one of those role models. Um, but I'm curious, you mentioned that when you see role models of your own, you know, who are some of those those people who you look up to and who inspire you? Um, when we all mentioned Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela's and they were fighters for equality and against racism. And uh, right now they need to be mentioned more than ever for what is going on around the world, especially to do with Black Lives Matter. So I think it's to say that their fight is not over yet, but also especially uh, Benazir Bhutto, who was the first female prime minister uh, of Pakistan and also in the whole Muslim countries. So she was a role model to me and to many young girls to believe that they can become leaders of their country uh, and, and many more, especially when I meet young girls, I uh, have met many uh, girls, in, in, including in refugee camps. One was Najla, 
and uh, she's a Yazidi refugee in a camp in Iraq. And the smile on her face and the hope in her eyes inspired me to believe that there is future, that the future uh, can be improved. We can make it better for everyone because this girl in a refugee camp, she's not giving up on her life. She's passionate. She's carrying a dictionary. She wants to learn new things. She she wants to learn one new word every day. And she's passionate about changing the world. So that sort of gives you hope. So all these young girls that I meet, they're also my role models. You know, I'd love to talk a little bit also about just the current state of, of girls' education. So, you know, there's data from UNESCO that shows that girls in the world's least developed nations went from spending less than three years in school on average in 1970 to almost nine years in school in 2017. And this growth definitely mirrors in comparison to what we see in wealthier nations where the average amount of time girls spend in school is 17 years. But it definitely seems when you think about that, when you look at those numbers, that the situation has been improving. And so when you think about your experience as a little girl in Pakistan and compare that with some of the of the things that you're seeing now through your work, some of the, the girls who you've just mentioned now, do you think that things are, are getting better still? Are you seeing that there are greater opportunities for girls around the world today? There are different ways uh, in which we can look at that. Uh, firstly, in terms of passion of girls and girls' activism and seeing young leaders uh, among girls who want to become that change makers. Uh, yes, 100%. There is hope. There's optimism. In terms of the work that local activists do, there could be young girls, there could be, uh, you know, men and women who are passionate about uh, bringing education into their communities. They could be working in the most deprived, the most marginalized rural areas uh, from Pakistan to Nigeria to Brazil to in all these countries and looking at their activism with limited resources and with so much hard work and with so many difficulties, that is truly inspiring. And that gives you hope that with this passion, yes, we will see change. But then when you look at the government level and that global level in terms of where resources are and how much is missing, how much is lacking in that, that is something that really concerns me. And I hope that world leaders make you know, good commitments towards education. They make commitments towards financing the secondary education of girls, the quality education of girls, safe education of girls, but also fulfill those commitments. Sometimes they make commitments, but they hardly fulfill that. So it's important that we keep on pushing uh, leaders to stick to what they have committed. And I'd love to talk about that uh, more, just how we can keep leaders um, accountable and how we can ensure that they stay committed to this. You know, one of the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals, actually two, one is focused on quality education uh, for all and then women's equality. Uh, the UN hopes that we would achieve this by 2030, uh, which is now just 10 years away. And I'm curious how you think we we can actually do the work of making that happen. How can we as individuals hold governments accountable? What sort of things would you like to see from governments to to show that they really are making strides towards seeing this happen? So I think there are many ways that an individual can help, whether that is writing a letter to your MP to uh, promoting it and spreading that message on social media, you know, tagging them, writing a letter to them, engaging in, in campaigning that is going on for uh, girls' education. But uh, another way which I truly believe in is that we need to support local activists, local educators. And that is the mission that Malala Fund has been working on over the past few years 
We started this Malala Fund Education Activist Network, uh, and we are supporting more than 60 activists around the world in, in more than seven or eight countries. And uh, they're also currently changing their work according to what how COVID has changed things for them. For instance, in Nigeria, our activists are using radio to give lessons and engaging education-related content to children because that's sort of the means that works there. But on the other hand, in Pakistan, the champions are working on using apps, but also national television because that's something that people engage with the most. So I think it's working with the local communities that's really important. And in that, you can support Malala Fund or other organizations who are focusing on that. You know, my father and I started as local activists in Swat Valley. So uh, I understand what it means when you give even sort of little support to uh, a local activist. It it impacts their work hugely and it helps them in so many ways to improve their work and reach out to many more girls. That's great. And I mean, you started to list some examples there uh, that you've seen in Pakistan and other parts of the world of things that people are doing. And are there nations that you look to and think, you know, wow, they've really figured this out. They're really getting it right in this in this way. And, and that you think nations um, can look to as models for how to implement some of these strategies for, for girls in their own countries? Well, I think in terms of like, what is the ideal sort of model for girls' education? I don't think there is consensus on that yet. Uh, in terms of the countries that we are working in, where either the number of uh, girls who are out of school is the highest, it depends on the area where like in Lebanon, they're using these small electronic devices called Tabshura, uh, which has uh, all the educational content that uh, that those children need for that age and does not require that much electricity. It can be connected to multiple computers and they're very helpful in refugee camps and they're using it for Syrian refugee girls. Uh, and they're also trying to promote it on the sort of country level in Lebanon as well. So the, it sort of varies across countries and where we are working. You know, on the one hand, it is a digital device. On the other hand, it's a radio. Then in another country, it's it's an app or it's a national television. So and I think that's sort of the bottom-up approach that we, we might need because there's not that sort of one fixed solution. Uh, if you, I don't know, send iPads to the north of Nigeria and if there is lack of electricity and internet, that might not work. So it's important that you engage with the local uh, activist and uh, sort of find what is best for that area. Well, we have tons and tons of questions coming in from our community. So why don't we take a couple of those right now? As a male university professor, what can others like me and society as a whole offer to support your passion? How can we be the best allies for you? Uh, one way is to uh, go on Malala Fund's website, malala.org, uh, and uh, there are many ways outlined there. You can become a supporter. You can engage on our platform called Assembly. Assembly is a platform where uh, young girls share their stories. And I remember when I was uh, blogging as an 11-year-old girl, sharing my story of what my life was like under the Taliban. And uh, a lot of people read it. A lot of people listened to it. They supported me. So there are so many stories out there where you know, girls will truly inspire you. And, you know, when you see their commitment, their passion and their hard work, uh, it's just incredible. And how do you get boys and men to buy into the importance of empowering girls and women? Well, my father has sort of uh, been an advocate in that. He always shares his story of how he was celebrating the birth of his daughter while his relatives and everyone else was telling my mom that next time, hopefully she will have a son when I was born. So... Uh, my father has always celebrated me as his daughter and he was passionate about girls' education. So when you have men role models who are 
you know, openly and vocally feminist who not just verbally tell people that women are equal to men, but they practically show it. I think that's the men we need who will say that they are giving equal opportunities to their daughters. They will allow them to do any job. They will allow them to have access to the same opportunities as boys have. There are so many ways in which men can help and they're very much needed because when we talk on that bigger scale, that's where the problem lies. So when we talk about the decisions that are made in a room and mostly these when these decisions are about women, what you see is that there are men sitting on that table and there's a lack of women's representation. There's sometimes no woman on, on that table. So it's important that we provide room for women to be on those tables where decisions about their future, about their body are made. So women's presence, women's voices are very much needed. And uh, I hope that men and boys need to sort of stand up for that and defend women's uh, equality. Let's take uh, another question here. I understand that the number of girls attending school has improved greatly, but that the quality of that education is often sorely lacking. What are your thoughts on the best ways to improve the quality of education once the girls are able to be in school? I 100% agree. You know, when we talk about the girls out of school, that number is in millions. But the girls who are in school and are not learning, that number is also in millions. And that is concerning because, you know, in, in future, there would be uh, more than a billion girls who would not be ready to participate in the task force requirements that are needed at that time. So uh, there is that concern that if girls do not receive quality education, they're not receiving education about technology that they might need in future, they will not be ready to participate in the economy. And also, I personally think that we need gender sensitive curriculum. Uh, We need awareness about sexuality. We need awareness about personal protection. And I think this is very much needed, especially for young girls. So there are like three things that Malala Fund focuses on. One is financing for education. There's a huge gap in that, and that's what we have been pushing for. Second is quality of education. And with that, we are working with local activists as well, looking into technology and then making it gender sensitive. Uh, And uh, the the last is challenging social norms uh, that prevent girls from going to school. Let's take one more question. Um, So, Do you have plans to go back to Pakistan? How much of your future advocacy do you plan to focus in, in your home country? So our advocacy has been focused uh, in Pakistan. We have been doing projects there. And the village that my father comes from, Shangla, both my parents are from that village. And there was no secondary school for girls. And when I you know, started activism and then I was receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. And at that time, I felt like I need to start from my home country and I need to start from that village. So I donated that money towards that project. So in Pakistan, we have been working on that school and now girls are studying in that school. It's the first secondary school in that village and everybody is just so, so excited. And all the girls are so, so excited to be in that school. And I also heard one time that uh, they were given sort of uh, their break and a lot of girls just complained that they don't want breaks and they just want to be in school because it has provided them that safety and that opportunity to you know, be creative and have uh, that time with their friends that they may not be able to get otherwise. So that has been our work in Pakistan. We want to do even more and we are, you know, planning our advocacy for the next few years. Uh, I definitely want to go to Pakistan. And that is my home country. And and I love where I'm from, uh, Swat Valley. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. We are surrounded by these tall mountains and these beautiful rivers. So it's really a heaven on earth. So hopefully whenever this pandemic uh restrictions are uplifted and whenever things are back to normal, 
I would love to go back to Pakistan. And you've mentioned how uh, important it is to have youth voices. And we've seen so many other people in so many other spaces standing up and speaking out against injustice and inequality and calling out leaders, people like Greta Thunberg and Emma Gonzalez and the young people leading Hong Kong's umbrella movement and so many others. And I think Generation Z is definitely at the center of so much social change. And in many ways, you are the first, the mother of this youth activism movement. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious what you think about as you see so many young people making real change out there in the world. To be honest, when I started my activism as, you know, 10 or 11 year old girl, what really helped me and what really empowered me was the support from my father and my teachers and other people who believed in my voice at that age. Anyone could have easily told me that Malala, you're 11, you have no right to say anything about these very serious issues. And you can go sit in your room, do some drawing and read some books and that's it. But I'm glad that my father and others stood by me. They valued my voice, they supported me. And this is needed more than ever. So I, I, I'm glad that I believed in myself and I stepped forward. And I took myself seriously right from the start. Other people don't listen to me. That doesn't matter because as long as I keep on fighting, I know that they will at some point. But when I start doubting myself, I think that's the time when I when I sort of fail. So when I'm seeing these young leaders uh, speaking out, whether for climate change and about gun control, uh, and girls are talking about you know freedom and, and freedom of expression, and that just, I feel so, so happy. I cannot express this. Uh, in words. And I hope that this group of young activists, it grows bigger and bigger. We are the future. We care about our future. We want a healthier, we want a safer, we want a better world for all of us. Uh, And I think in that we need to start our activism now because there's just so, so much that needs to be done and that needs to be fixed. And do you think that this moment is different in some ways from the past? How do you frame this time in comparison to, to maybe when you've, you know, first started being vocal about girls' education? I was in grade five or six when I started speaking out. I, you know, when you are young, you want to envision what your future is going to be like. And you always wait for that moment when your studies will be completed and you will not have those sort of constraints around you that keeps your activism or your movement a bit limited. For me right now, when I have completed my studies, uh, I feel it's a moment that I am looking forward to doing a sort of flashback and looking back at, you know, what I have achieved so far, what could I have done differently and what is next. Uh, and I do like the sense of urgency that is right now. Urgency for change, whether that is to do with climate change, whether that is to do with racial justice, whether that is to do with equality against sexism, all these things. I just love the sense of urgency because it is pushing all of us to do something now. Because if we keep on waiting, I I just think there's never that moment where you feel, okay, this is the right moment to to challenge the system because uh, you might end up waiting for your whole life. So I'm curious, you know, what what do you see, I guess, for yourself in in 10 years, 20 years, and, and even at the end of your lifetime, when you look back and see what you've accomplished, you know, what do you really hope your your greatest impact on history will be? My biggest, biggest dream wish is to see every girl in school. That has been my dream sort of since the day when I myself was out of school. 
I really remember that moment when I woke up on the 15th of January 2009 and I could not go to school. This was because the Taliban had banned girls' education in Swat and no girl was allowed to go back to school. And I realized that education was more than just learning from textbooks and more than just writing and reading. It was about emancipation for women. I felt more vulnerable to being uh, married at early age, to being discriminated, not being able to achieve my dreams, whether that was to become a doctor or a teacher. So these are the things that are taken away from you at the same time. Since then, I have stayed committed to girls' education. And uh, I hope that in my lifetime, I see that. I believe in it. You know, sometimes it sounds sort of too optimistic, uh, but I think we can do it. Other than that, I think there's there's a lot more to fix. I, we need to do a lot more about empowering women, allowing girls to dream big and to dream sort of beyond what society tells them to do. Uh, and I want to see more women in leadership. I want to see women running countries. I want to see women, you know, running companies and big firms and going to space and, uh, you know, working in technology and being part of all those sectors that are out there. So I, I hope to see that in my lifetime. It's great. I mean, I think what inspires a lot of people and what makes so many people look to you um, as a source of, uh, of of hope is this fearlessness that you seem to have, this this feeling that you can sort of take anything on. And I'm curious, what makes you afraid, I guess, in this moment? Um, and then finally, what, what makes you most hopeful? But what scares you? Um, I think what scares me is, is probably being too slow and not being, uh, not being true to myself. I have always believed in activism. I've always believed in change. And I think it is possible if you stay committed to it. So I hope that I stay committed to it. And I hope that I'm surrounded by the right people who guide me in the right path. Uh, and, and it is true. People get exhausted. People get tired. People lose hope. They don't see any change. They're surrounded by people who might be encouraging them not to speak out because just telling them that it could be controversial or they might lose support. So those sort of things are there. And I think it's staying strong in the middle of those constraints that are out there. So I think that's something that I really hope that we all continue to have. Um, what gives me hope is the hope that young people have. And, and this younger generation, they are the future. And I'm really, really happy and hopeful that they will be change makers and they will improve this world. They will fix what you know our fathers and forefathers have, sort of the, the mistakes that they have made, and they'll fix the system that they have created. It might take time, but we will stay committed to it and we will make a world that is fair and equal for everyone. Okay, that is it for this season. Thank you so much for tuning in. You know, if you have feedback, we would love to hear it. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at ted.com. We read every piece of feedback we get. We'll be back later this year with more episodes of the TED interview. So a big thank you to our podcast team. Our editor is Grace Rubenstein. Our podcast producer is Kim Nidafane-Peterser. And our production manager is Anna Phelan. Our show is mixed by David Herman. And our theme music is by Alison Leighton-Brown. Thank you, our listeners. Stay well.